Let's open up our Bibles together now to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be settling in this morning. Going to be reading together starting from verse 12, but really focusing on on one verse from from Colossians chapter 3. But I want to read the context here that we find this verse in. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word, for this good, pure, and perfect gift that you have given to us, that through your word we might know you, our God, that through your word we would hear your voice, that by your spirits working through your word we'd be transformed, brought first from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and then ever more transformed into the likeness of Christ as we live our lives. Pray, God, that you would accomplish your good work through your word, by your spirit among us this morning, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word. And I do pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are taking a short break, a a summer break from the book of Romans that we've been going through about 53 sermons now into the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 8. I am not tired of Romans, but thought this was an appropriate thing to do for the summer. Series we're calling Gospel Reset, refocusing ourselves on the things that really matter. Who is it that we're called to be as a church? What is it that we're to root our identity in as, as a church? How is it that we can best glorify the Lord together as a church? How can we be most effective for his kingdom on earth? And so that's really the goal of what we're doing, trying to root our identity as a church in the right things. And so the last two weeks, we've, we've looked at the glory of God being the overarching, the driving force that, that motivates the church We talked last week of the gospel being the central message of the church, and really the the central aim in all that we do is to communicate the gospel. This week now, we turn our attention to corporate worship, and we'll spend three Sundays on the topic of corporate worship. When when most people in, in our day and age and in our culture say worship, what they mean is singing. You even see churches will say this sometimes, join us at 10 a.m. for the word and worship. Uh, I try never to use language like that. We will endeavor never to use language like that in the church because it makes us think somehow that the word is separated from worship as something else. Worship is much, much more than singing. We worship God with our lives, not just our voices. 
Corporate worship is much more than just singing as well. It includes everything that we do as the gathered church. And so we're going to be looking at some of the specifics that we do as the gathered church over the next three weeks. It includes singing. It includes praying. It includes preaching. It includes the Lord's Supper. And so over the next three weeks, we'll be talking about corporate worship. But today we are focusing in on singing, our corporate singing together. Next week, we'll talk about preaching. In two weeks, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. But as we get started, I want to compare two popular corporate worship songs, two songs that are are popularly sung in churches. One of them is far more popular today than the other one is. Two songs that have a, a common theme, a theme of spiritual warfare that we walk through in this life. And I want to read the totality of the lyrics of both songs to you, which should leave me about like six minutes to preach. But I want to emphasize the point. I think doing that emphasizes the point. The first song, a song that if this is your church, you're quite familiar with, is by far the less popular of the two songs. On YouTube, the most views I could find of any video of this song was 1.1 million, which sounds like a lot, but not compared with the views that most popular worship songs have. Here are the lyrics of this song. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel fate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus It is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That great hymn of the church written over 500 years ago by Martin Luther. It's a song that I have occasionally had people talk to me and go, you actually sing that? Oh, yeah, (laughs) we love it. Well, that's by far the less popular of these two songs. This other one, I found a video with 4 million views, a video with 5 million, a video with 13 million, a video with 16 million, and a video with 32 million. Just completely eclipses the first song we just referenced. And let me read the totality of the lyrics to you. This is how I fight my battles. 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 It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I fight my battles. 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 It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded. Should I go on? We're not halfway through the song yet. 
We're like a quarter of the way through the song and there are no other words in the entire song. It just keeps repeating that over and over while the music swells and you get goosebumps because of the expert musicianship. If you go to a typical evangelical church this morning, you are far more likely to sing the second song than you are the first song. It is much more popular today than the first song. So does that make it a better song? What determines what we should be singing in the church? Should we sing what sounds the coolest? Should we sing what gives us the most goosebumps? Should, should we sing what draws more of a crowd and is more requested? Because I'll tell you, people who will visit this church and we sing the first song will be turned off by it and be like, I don't want to go to a church like that. Maybe you're here visiting this morning and you've already thought that about our singing. <laughs> you're going to love this sermon. Should we sing what we think the young people will like best? It sounds the most like what the rest of the culture is doing. Should we sing the songs we've always sung in this church and we're not bringing those newfangled songs in here? What determines it? Well, Colossians 3, verse 16 in particular, has a lot to tell us about our corporate singing. And we're going to focus in on this verse, verse 16. Take a look at it with me again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This verse is one of the very few verses in the New Testament that describes what happened when the church gathered together for corporate worship. It's in this, the middle of this paragraph, and I wanted to read the whole paragraph that came in to us this morning, because it's in the middle of a paragraph that's describing how it is we should live our lives in light of the gospel. Last week we talked of the need in the church for gospel centrality and in our lives for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to be the central thing, the lens through which we view everything. And this is a paragraph that's describing that kind of life, and we find this statement in the middle of it. It's bookended by verses 12 and 13 and on the one end and 17 on the other. 12 says... Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If we would keep those admonitions in mind, by the way, as it pertains to our corporate worship, we'd be an awful lot nicer to each other in the church. That was free. That's not in my notes. I just wanted to throw that out. So verse 16 then, situated in there, gives us three important aspects of gospel-centered worship. The content of gospel-centered worship in song, the purpose of our singing together, and the attitude that we ought to bring to our worship in song. We'll just look at these as we unpack this verse, the content of gospel-centered worship in song. Paul says here, look at the beginning of verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what is the content supposed to be of our worship? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should primarily be singing about the good news of Jesus Christ. This, this phrase, let the word of Christ dwell dwell in you richly. What is the word of Christ? It's a very specific expression. 
It has a very specific meaning. We, we see throughout the New Testament the expression, the word of God, but only a few times do we see the word of Christ, and they're not exactly interchangeable. The sense here in the Greek of this expression that's only used a couple times in the New Testament, the word of Christ, it is words about Christ. That, that, that's what Paul's telling us. Let the words about Christ, the word that centers on Christ, in other words, the gospel message, let that gospel message dwell in you richly. Paul, earlier in Colossians, in chapter 1, flip there with me, chapter 1, it's probably one page to turn in your Bible. He gives us a beautiful description of the word of Christ in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul says, this is the message about Christ that should be driving our corporate worship. This gospel, this word concerning Christ must dwell in us richly. In other words, this message about the Lord Jesus Christ must be the primary topic of our preaching and the primary topic of our singing. It must be the thing we meditate upon. It must be the thing that we speak of, that we study, that we proclaim. Well, won't this get boring after a while? If this is what we've got to work with, this is supposed to be the primary thing that we, we preach about, that we sing about, won't, won't this get boring if we orient all of our singing to these things? The answer is no, it won't, not to Christians. It might to non-Christians, but they don't like what we do anyway. Wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ are limitless glories. We could never get to the end of it. We could never come to the end of it. Wrapped up in this gospel, this, this word concerning Christ is our triune God's creation and sovereign rule over all things. Our fall into sin and rebellion, our need for redemption. Wrapped up in this is God's perfect, spotless holiness. God's gracious faithfulness to his people, his promised salvation, Christ's virgin birth, his humanity, his deity, his eternal spotless righteousness, his, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, the great mercy of God towards undeserving sinners by the propitiatory wrath-absorbing sacrifice of his Son. Jesus' ascension to the right hand of glory, his present reign where even now he's putting all of his enemies under his feet, his continual intercession before the throne of God for us, his people, on our behalf, his promised return, 
the coming new heavens and the new earth. We could go on and on and on and on. All of these things that are wrapped up in this word concerning Christ. All of these things that are, are wrapped up in the truth of the gospel. We are called in our corporate worship primarily to magnify the greatness of God. That's why we gather for worship. That's why we sing. To magnify the greatness of God, particularly as it relates to the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're going to do that, our minds have to be engaged. God works through our brains. That's not a thing that I think popular Christianity likes to likes to admit, because it feels very unspiritual. But God doesn't bypass your brain to get to your heart. Med- meditating on robust truth about God is the fuel for genuine, passionate worship. M- much more than goosebumps are. Second, then, the purpose of gospel-centered worship and song, as he goes on, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what is the purpose of our singing together? It's edification. That's the purpose. It's as the word of Christ dwells richly within the saints, they teach and admonish one another through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's what we're meant to do. Do you notice that? To teach one another through song. We're we're to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom by means of the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's that's what Paul's saying here. And there's a couple reasons we know Paul is saying that. There are two grammatical reasons in the Greek that make it very clear that has to be what Paul means, that that the word singing actually modifies the words teaching and admonishing. Now, I'm not a Greek expert, and neither are you, so we're not going to go any farther into that, because there's another reason we can know that this is what Paul's saying, and it's because it's not the only time Paul says something like this. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I I came up as a young Christian in a church tradition, in a group of churches whose main emphasis was musical worship. And some of the teaching we regularly received was that any song, they called it dialing direct, any song that's not dialing direct, in other words, we're not singing you God this or you God that, we're singing a song that is actually just proclaiming a truth to one another, that that's a song that we ought not be singing in our churches if it doesn't do that. If we sing a mighty fortress is our God, you're not singing to God, you're singing to each other and and we're singing to God. The only problem with that is we never read anything like that in the Bible, Paul says we sing to teach one another. We sing to encourage one another, to instruct one another. Now, there's nothing wrong with singing to God. We couldn't sing any psalms if we wouldn't sing songs directly to God. It's a wonderful thing to do. But there's a purpose for which God ordained that we would sing together as a church. When the Holy Spirit of God fills 
his people, it causes a certain response. They teach and admonish one another through God-magnifying, truth-filled, gospel-centered, Jesus-glorifying songs. The result is the edification of the saints, the encouragement, the sanctification of the saints, of God's people. That is the primary reason we sing together. That's the reason. Now, this is totally contrary to how most people think about this, to how most people talk about this. Even for some of us, believe it or not, some of the complaints about our music make their way to my ears. And those complaints are always centered on musical stylings. I like singing this kind of song, and I want to sing this kind of song, and I don't like singing this kind of song, and I want to sing this. I never hear anyone say anything about like, we're not singing enough rich theology. Bring me those complaints. I mean, you're wrong because we are, but I'm happy about those complaints. We're not singing in enough of a bluegrass style. On the other hand, is at odds with what Scripture teaches us about what the point of singing is. For many people in the church, Worship in song is a very individual thing. We're taught to think that way. I was taught, I was, I was instructed in what it meant to lead God's people in singing from an individual view. One of my early mentors in leading worship told me, sometimes you're leading the people, sometimes you're just worshiping in front of them. And as a young, like, 19-year-old guy, I was like, man, that's good. That's spiritual. No, that was terrible. That was dumb. The church often does things to promote this individualistic, wrong-headed, selfish, dare I say, idolatrous view of worship. The lights are turned down low, creating the mood in the room. The volume is turned up so high you can't even hear each other, even if you're shouting. But it doesn't matter because nobody's singing because it's a concert atmosphere. It's all about me and my emotions and my Jesus The goal is goosebumps and personal experience. In fact, one of the most popular ways in churches to speak of uh, corporate worship is to call it the worship experience. I'm going to say it's wrong-headed from the start. We're, We're doing things that promote this. This is not the point of corporate worship according to Paul. And Paul knows more about this than the church growth experts do. The point of our singing is not a personal experience with God. It is the edification of the saints around us by singing profound truth to one another. And then in return, our edification, because they're also singing profound truth. So I'm being edified by the truth I proclaim. I'm being edified by the truth I hear proclaimed from other believers. That is the primary purpose for singing together. And yes, Sometimes that produces enormous emotion. I can remember the first time I ever heard the modern hymn that we sing here that I just forgot the title of, which is great. He will hold me fast. First time I ever heard that, I stood in a room of about 10,000 predominantly men who belted it out, and I couldn't sing because I wept. It was profoundly moving. It was a profound experience of the grace of God, and yet 
That's a byproduct of this. It's not, it's not the primary purpose for why God instructs us to do it. One author says corporate worship is not about having your personal devotions with a hundred other people in the room. That's how we look at it. I, I was trained to, to try to get people to close their eyes as much as possible and just tune everyone out. They would tell us, tune everyone out, just you and God. That is not the purpose of corporate singing. That is not the purpose. There's a couple applications we could make from this truth that, by the way, comes from the Apostle Paul, not me. So you can't email him, though. I understand. You can be upset with me. Application number one, if you begrudgingly mumble the words when we sing together as a church, or maybe you don't even go that far, you are not doing your part. In fact, let's call it what it is. You're being disobedient to the clear teaching of Scripture. You're robbing your brothers and sisters of the blessing of having your voice added to the chorus of teaching and admonition and encouragement in the truth. Let me encourage you, friends, sing robustly when we sing. We're, I promise you we're only going to sing stuff worth singing. Second, in order to do this, in order to do what Paul's instructing us to do as it pertains to our corporate singing together, our songs must be full of truth. Many popular worship songs over the past 20 years are what I would like to classify as Jesus is my boyfriend songs. These are songs that you could actually interchange Jesus' name, if it's ever used at all, with the name of your husband or your wife, and the song still works. If you can do that, that song is not worthy of singing together in corporate worship. There's not nearly enough truth in it, if you can pull that off. Now, you're going to be listening to every song we sing, and you're like, I think this one worked. Fine. Those songs don't have enough truth to sustain you when the storms of life come your way. When the storms of life come your way, I can tell you how many times I have thought through the words of a mighty fortress is our God. And I've thought of our dear brothers and sisters laying down their lives in the Protestant Reformation with that song on their lips, being sustained in the faith. I have never so much as once in the years since this song has come out been tempted to just sing over and over to myself, this is how I fight my battles when the storms of life come. I don't even know what the this is. There's not enough truth there to sustain you, maybe to give you some goosebumps and make you feel spiritual. We're not just called to pursue God with our hearts, we're called to pursue him with our minds. We need more than goosebumps to sustain us. We need meat. We need truth. We need doctrine. We're not just called to love God. We're called to love the truth about God. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, yes. With all your soul, yes. With all your strength, yes. With all your mind, We're called to love the Lord with all of us. He doesn't bypass our minds. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of, of God. It is, it is a reflection on who he is and what he has done. So, so the true worship of God is evoked, informed, inspired by a right knowledge of God. 
There's only one place we can go to get that, and it is not inward. It is the living word of God. And Paul says in particular, it's the word about Christ. That's the revelation that produces worship in us. We don't worship the Bible, of course, no, but we come to know God through it. We get to see his greatness in it. And so magnifying God's greatness and edifying one another in song begins with a proclamation of objective biblical truths, but it doesn't end there. This is where God is so abundantly gracious to us. It doesn't just end with our declaring truths. It ends with, it results in the expression of deep and holy affections towards God. These truths in God's people, as the word about Christ dwells richly within them, produces in them great affection, great emotion. We're not just reciting facts about God like multiplication tables. God wants us to delight in him. I love Psalm 112, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. We study God. We see who God is, his his attributes, his power, his mercy, his grace, his holiness, his justice. And it causes us to delight in him. And our delight in him makes us want to have more of him. And we study him more. We meditate more on who God is. And that only produces more delight in us. And it's this upward spiral of glory, of knowing more fully who our God is and delighting in him more fully forever. One of the most exciting things to me in, in all the world is the thought that a billion years from now, I'm still going to be not having plumbed the depths of the greatness of who God is and delighting in him even more fully as I stand in awe of his glory. Finally then, briefly, the attitude of gospel-centered worship and song. Verse 16 again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're told to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Scholars have discovered an interesting thing about the Apostle Paul when compared with all the other contemporary writings of that culture. One scholar writes it like this. Paul mentions the subject of thankfulness in his letters more often line for line than any other Hellenistic author. That's Greek author, pagan or Christian. Paul's all about thankfulness. 46 times in his letters, Paul talks about thankfulness. In other words, this is a big deal. This is really important. Paul's going to come back to it over and over and over and over again. Thankfulness is essential. So friends, examine yourselves. Do you give thanks more or complain more? What's your life like? Since we all have very effective inner lawyers, maybe I'll ask it this way. What would other people say about you? What do they hear coming out of your mouth most often? Do you verbalize your thankfulness to God, to other people? And the situations that come into your life, the good ones and the bad ones, are, are you verbalizing your thankfulness to God for his mercy in your life and his kindness to you, or do they most often hear you complain and vent? 
Does your thankfulness to God affect the way you speak? Does your thankfulness to God affect the way you think? Are you a happy person or a grumpy person? A thankful person or a complainer, a gossip, a nitpicker? Friend, that is a worship issue. The answer to those questions is a worship issue, not a personality issue. Gospel-focused thankfulness brings joy. It produces worship. It honors the Lord. This is the attitude we ought to come to our corporate singing with. And and I would challenge all of us to think of, of what's running through our mind as we come to our corporate singing together. Is it that? Or are we thinking about the style of the music? Or what somebody's wearing while they're singing that music? What other noises we hear in the room? Christian, the worship that God has ordained for us has very little to do with style of music. Has very little to do with how we feel or what our preferences are. It doesn't depend on goosebumps or personal experiences. Christian worship is gospel-inspired worship. It is Christ-centered worship. It is cross-focused worship. So what that means for us on a practical level is we should never move on from the gospel. From the cross. From the resurrection of Christ. We only move into more profound understandings of the gospel. And seeing how, how much the gospel relates to, to every facet of our lives. That's why we sing the songs we sing, and it is why we refuse to sing some of the songs we won't sing. Even though they might be wildly popular. Over the years, not as much here because we mostly sing hymns. Over the years of leading worship, I've had people come to me and say, why don't you sing this song? I love this song. They sing it everywhere. Well, the people that sing it are hip, uh, heretics, so... We're not going to do that one. <laughs> Why don't we sing this song? Because uh, it's all about us. It's not actually about God. It's not fit for corporate worship. People, by the way, love that when you don't sing their favorite songs. <laughs> you know that. You get irritated with me too. It doesn't matter if a song is popular. It doesn't matter if it makes us feel strong emotions. It matters that we sing according to God's word, as God has ordained. Statistically, most people, and this is sad for me, will forget what they hear in the sermon. Unless I say something that really strikes you and you write it down and you remember that little phrase, or that really offends you, you'll remember that for a long time, you're going to forget most of what I say, but we remember the songs. The songs leave a lasting impression. They run through our minds all week. By the way, God made us that way. It's God who ordained that that be the case. And so we need to be careful with what we sing. We need to make sure that we provide the opportunity for ourselves as a people to be affected by the right things. To meditate on, to to rehearse great truths about God. Great truths of the gospel, high and lofty truths about God that produce in us high and lofty worship and high and lofty living. 
If the only thing that people knew about God came from the songs that we sing, what would they know about God? And what would they not know about God? I'll tell you, friends, that's a far more important question than what style the music's going to be that we sing. Would they know of our God being triune? Would they know of his wrath? Would they know of his mercy? Would they know of his faithfulness? Would they know of the, the holiness of God? Our, our, our songs must be thoroughly biblical and God-focused on God's gospel, God's works, God's acts, God's promises, God's faithfulness. The world is constantly telling us lies about those things. The world is constantly bombarding us from, from all angles with lies. God doesn't exist. It's all about you. You're the most important thing in all the universe. Sin doesn't have any consequences. God never judges. God doesn't have any wrath. This life is all that there is. Oh, God's not faithful to you. He doesn't particularly like you. These lies come at us from all direction. And in the face of these lies, we gather together every Sunday morning to proclaim truth, to declare truth, to declare to ourselves, to declare to one another, to declare back to God what we know to be eternally true because God has revealed it to us in his perfect, infallible, inerrant, divinely inspired word. There is one God with sovereign rule over all things. This is his world. We have rebelled against him. This world is in a state of rebellion against him. And yet in his mercy, he sent his son to die in our place for our sins. Through Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness and peace with God. Not by working hard on our end, but by putting our trust in him and him alone, in his sinless life, in his substitutionary sacrifice in our place, in his glorious resurrection, in his sovereign rule. That's how we get salvation. We declare these truths to one another. C.J. Mahaney said, reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. If the gospel is the most vital news in the world, and if salvation by grace is the defining truth of our existence, we should create ways to immerse ourselves in these truths every day. No days off allowed. Oh, that's the truth. Christian, you need to proclaim the gospel to yourself day by day hour by hour, minute by minute even. Proclaim this gospel over and over to yourself. But there is something unique that happens when we join together in this room every Sunday morning. In fact, it's something supernatural. When we sing the gospel with and to each other every week, we are literally training ourselves to do this very thing of reminding ourselves of the gospel. We, we train ourselves to preach the gospel to ourselves as we sing together and as we sing to one another. We, we are teaching ourselves how to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. What a glorious gift the Lord has given to us in our corporate worship and song. May, may we begin to think of it that way and in those categories. May I remember coming up as a young worship leader, they talked about what was called the worship wars. 
And it basically meant there are people who think we need to sing traditional style music and people who think we need to sing modern music, and they were at war with each other. And it was called the worship wars. May we never have any kind of worship war in this church. What a perverted thing that is. May may this be the driving engine of who we are as a church. Not our preferred musical styles. That we'd be a people of God committed to worshiping God in spirit and in truth for the glory of God, for the joy of his people. That's the call. That's the call. That's where we're going. That's who we're going to be. By God's grace, he'll bring us there by his spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, what, how, how kind you have been to us. Lord, your salvation, which is, no eye has seen, no ear heard, no mind conceived, the great things you've prepared for those who love you in this great salvation. We, we, we can't comprehend your astounding grace and mercy that you have shown us, your power to save to the uttermost those who put their trust in you. Lord, we are astounded, and yet you have been so kind to give us so much more abundantly than, than even that. Lord, thank you for the good gift of the church. Thank you that we gather together with family, as friends, as sons and daughters of the King, reconciled to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather together to teach and encourage one another, to admonish one another with the gospel. Pray, Lord, you would make us faithful to that end. Lord, make us thankful, joyous worshipers in every facet of our lives, but all the more so when it comes to our corporate worship and and fellowship as a church. We want to honor you, the Lord of the church. We want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our worship, the chief shepherd, the cornerstone, pray, Lord, make us faithful. Make us fruitful for your kingdom's sake, for your glory's sake, for the joy of your people eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.